everybody, you're listening to the Rock Podcast with Fox and Maya. Thanks for supporting the show. This is a show with adult content, so if you're not of legal age where you live, then turn off now. This podcast is about rock bondage. Rock bondage is edge play with inherent risk, and we strongly recommend you get proper training and listen to ours episode zero on safety and consent in rock before attempting it. Find it at the top of our FetLife page, Rock Podcast. Fox is a rigger and Maya is a bottom. We're rope partners, we've been practicing together for nearly five years now. We live in Bangkok, which is kind of cold today, <laughs> and love to share our passion for rope with a wider community. And today's episode is sponsored by Friction Live. Friction Live offers a variety of kink classes, mostly centered around rope and things you can do to complement your rope which you can follow along with from the comfort of your couch, your kitchen, your bed, your hot hair balloon, if it has the internet. <laughs> uh, you can attend the class live or view it recorded at your convenience. Check them out on frictionlive.ca. And talking of Canada, today we are pleased to be talking to Abby McNaughty. Yes, Maya. Abby McNaughty is a rope lover based in Quebec City, Canada. She has been self-tying since 2006 and started modeling as a tied-up person in 2007. She started tying others and self-suspending in 2011 when she learned with the Ichinawakai and the Kazamilanki in London. She travels all over the world to learn and share her discoveries with her community. Grounded in the Japanese style, her ropes have been described as experimental, sweet, sensual and sadistic usually all at the same time. We're very excited to talk to her about her rope path today. Welcome, Abby McNutty. Hello. Hi. Um, so to kick us off, tell us a bit about yourself. What's your, your journey with rope? How did you become interested in this subject um, all those years ago? Oh, um, so hello. Hi. Hi, Hi Abby. Hi. Um, so I always had an interest for anything that is unusual, and I'm also very geeky. So when I was in my in my early 20s, like Matrix came out, and people in university were calling me Trinity because I had all these like eccentric fetishist clothing. Um, and a few years later, I was doing a research for uh, a rhythmic noise show where I wanted to put some visual in the space about like. 50s fetishism aesthetic and that's when I stumble on a website that is called Rope Magic uh, that still exists today uh, that is basically just pictures of women tied up in hotel rooms and I remember like that moment where I saw this like very first picture that everything was in Japanese I couldn't understand a single word but it was just so inspiring like this vulnerability the aesthetic the emotion so from there, I became super obsessed with like finding things. But back then, there was no internet or anything. Um, so I, I did just lots of research, tried, like just bought a cheap rope, tried things on myself. Um, later, found like a photographer friend who was also interested in figuring things out, and I was doing some new chart with them before then. So we like we start experimenting together. And uh, as you mentioned earlier on, then like later I went to London to the London Festival and that's where I met a bunch of Japanese people and then everything was like my whole world was blown out of like understand how wide and different and varied the rope art could be. And since then I'm still learning. 
Mm. So speaking of variety, you have experience as a rope bottom, as a rope top, as a self-suspender. So how are those different for you? Um, reality is at the beginning, I think I didn't, I was a bit afraid. I didn't know what I wanted. So I had to experiment to really find out what was working for me. So I mean, self-tying was kind of practical. <laughs> I didn't need like yeah. to find a partner. I could figure things out. And I didn't trust myself tying other at first. So I think modeling came a bit more naturally at first. But even when I was modeling, I was like reading all the books, reading all the techniques, trying to understand everything that was behind it. And it was really once I was able to get proper classes and learning that like I started self-suspending and pushing my technique further. And of course, I think it was good for my tying path to have modeled first and experiment things, but it's also sometimes full of fallacies because when we've experimented things from the bottoming side, we tend to think that the person we're going to tie, we experiment the things the same way mm. we would do, but that's not the case. Yeah, I couldn't agree that, I couldn't agree with that any harder. We tend to project our own experiences and it feels completely different for a different person sometimes. Yeah, like I'm really strong from my hips and from the top of my chest. So like I know I can put a lot of load in there when I'm self-suspending. But in reality, like some people will like one of my partner completely hates anything that touch a very specific place on the hips. That is my favorite spot. Mm. So really, like it, it's a, it's a pitfall. <laughs> Sometimes I don't think it's essential to have gone through that path because it's it's full of like pros and cons of having done all the things. Mm. Mm. It's definitely not a substitute for communication with your partner that you've done. Definitely it. not. Yeah. Um, so you started your, your rope journey before um, FetLife, uh, which was 2008, um, and indeed before many of the internet resources were there. So how did you add to your experience and knowledge um, and find the resources to learn? So the, the first resource we found was Midori's book uh, that came out before then. And I mean, like I think it's one of the first books that was edited in English, or at least in like a non-Japanese uh, language. We were also discussing with people on RRC uh, and some like some different forums. There were some pieces, but I realized we were like me and my the friends. I started gathering around this newfound hobby. We were a bit clueless and we were taking our time a lot. We were being very slow and trying things and Yes, we were fucking up, but because we were taking so the steps were so small, the impacts of our fuck ups were also really small. Mm. I also don't live in a really big city, so I can imagine if like people are like in LA or in a really big place will have like clubs and bars and venue and things that they could get into. Here it is very small. I live in Quebec City. I found out actually that there was a BDSM party in my town, but only many years after. And it was an invitation only in a thing in a private residence. So, um, back then it was, it was like you had to surround yourself with friends. At least we had the internet. Like I know friends 
we started even before that. And they had like to post coded message in journals <laughs> to find people. So like we were already very lucky when I started. And then when FetLife came out, I was really early on the bandwagon. Like FetLife was found in Montreal. Uh, I have lots of common friends with John, which I've met a few times. Um, so we John Bakou, the creator of FetLife, right? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, John Bakou, the creator of FetLife. <laughs> um, so around 2010, the amount of people in FetLife got like big enough that we started to be able to have small groups and gathering in private house, and then it grew from there. And I find it funny because like every time I hear people complaining that like, oh, I've been doing broke for a few weeks or a few months and I haven't been suspended yet. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it took me like many, many years. Like, you'll be fine. Hmm. All right. <laughs> but I, I'm actually grateful that we like we took those small steps and we were able to do this kind of like safely. And like to, to grow it really slowly, I think really uh, is really the way to not cross boundaries and in a really big way. Hey guys, this is Fox coming in for a short break. Listeners like you make this podcast possible. We want to continue making this podcast for you for a long time. And to do that, we need your support. Please go to ropepodcast.com to buy rope video lessons from experts so we get a small commission on your purchase at no extra cost to you. In addition, a really great way to help us is donating on Patreon. A one-time amount or a monthly pledge that can be as little as the cost of your morning coffee makes a big difference to us. And you will gain cool perks like behind-the-scenes photos and the ability to vote on future podcast topics. Go support us on ropepodcast.com because you love rope too. So maybe the type of tying you do is more of the Japanese style. How would you say Japanese style rope bondage is different from other styles? Oh, maybe I shouldn't say that. Oh. <laughs> um, the, the thing that really drew me at first with Japanese rope bondage was uh, all the vulnerability, like bondage in general, is vulnerability and this image of complete surrender. And we know that historically speaking, like when we call about like American rope bondage and Japanese rope bondage, that they were very late. Like there are, there are pictures that kind of show that the, um, in the fifties, John Willie was really inspired by what he was seeing in Japanese magazines and that the Japanese had access to the bizarre magazine where he was publishing his Denzel in distress picture and that they were also being inspired by that. So, Really, like, what is Japanese style versus everything else is more of a spectrum to me that it is, like, two opposite things. And even inside the Japanese culture, the diversity is so fascinating. Like, you'll see people that are more, more focusing on on the aesthetic for picture or they're going to be doing porn photo shoots. So in porn photo shoot, yeah, like very like more explicit and more like inserting things, goals. Mm -hmm. So the, the forms of your ties really follow the function of what you want to do with it. And be it in anywhere in the world, you'll find people with different interests. So how they tie is really going to be different on what they aim to do. 
so I find like my, my personal journey was to try a bunch of things and, uh, in order to find what I really liked. Um, right now I'm spending lots of time with Nawashikana, which is probably my biggest inspiration and everything. And yeah, like I, I like the aesthetic of what Kana is doing, but I think what is more important is Kana's work is all about sadistic play. And we love the same things like pulling hair and fingers and trapping toes and crutch ropes. And so I think that the fact that their tastes uh, really align with mine makes it a good fit for me to learn from them. Um, another aspect is I'm, I'm a designer and an engineer from, uh, uh, from my studies and my work. So when I learned with, uh, with Kazami and, uh, and this student Dan at the beginning of my rope journey, all this like engineering that is really organized in Kazami style was really inspiring to me. And I'm still learning with Pedro, which also has this very engineering brain. So I'm assembling like these two very big part of me of like the play and the engineering into what I, what is my current style. I'm sure I'm going to meet with new people who are going to inspire more things. And then I'm probably going to evolve some more, but, uh, yeah, sorry. That was the very long answer. I don't no, think no, that's, that's what we're here for. Specific Japanese, don't be sorry. So what I find interesting is it's very varied. Mm-hmm. No, it's really interesting to hear about it. Um, one of the other things that you've done, um, or you s- seem to have done a lot of in your rope journey is create communities. And even your, your origin story, um, seems to indicate that you were creating a community right from the start. So can you tell us a bit about, um, creating communities in rope bondage? Yeah, I think I've, I've built many events and they all came from a need. So when I came back from London, People were all asking me like, oh, teach us stuff and we want to learn rope. And like imposter syndrome was of course there, but it was also bigger than that was the desire to give to my friend what they wanted. So we started experimenting with like classes and slowly built with local classes. And, um, and I think the like events look a lot like the people who organize them. Um, every event is unique because they're always organized by different people. So there's, there's definitely my, my color in every event that I make, but also, um, also it's, it's always start from the need, from the people needs it. So like there was the local community that we built some educative, uh, event for them. And then afterward, I built another event in Montreal. It is called, uh, NDC or, uh, Nuit Décombe which is a performance event. Um, a friend called me, uh, his name is Dunter, and he was like, oh, like Toronto is doing this really nice performance event and it's really helped grow the community. Would you like to organize that with me? And reality is that Montreal had all these amazing performers that were just waiting to have a space where they could perform and it started attracting people traveling from other provinces and even from the US and other countries. Um, so there was like, there was a need and then we built the event around what the, what the people need. The, the third one was Narix. So I went to, um, I was discussing with, uh, two friends, which were Ben Hart and, uh, Aeolus East. 
And they were like, we like we're having these like super cool conference with Shvarikon, and we need we need a place among the people who teach to be able to share and discuss because we're all teaching in silo and we never come together. Went to Urix and and was super inspired by what Felix Rickert was doing over there. So came back, asked Felix if we could steal this concept, and we started having this event uh, that has now grown into something with COVID now it's on hold, but uh, all these events are um, are still ongoing now. And I would add even more important is to learn when to step down. What so do you I, mean by that? So after five years of doing NDC and four years of doing Narex, I find that if you stay at the helm of an event for very long, your event will stagnate. Hmm. You will not get as much from it. And if you want your event to thrive, you need to let other people move it forward to bring more perspective, more variety. And so I, I took a break. I handed off all these events to a bunch of new people who have transformed it into something even better. And I think like creating communities about ourselves, it's about the people we serve. And there is a point where serving our people is not about us doing something, but letting them leading the thing, which is even stronger. Hmm. So besides doing something nice for your friends, what kind of rewards did you find you get from running events and building communities, which I imagine is a lot of work? <laughs> Reward is two sides. So I'm super grateful for the people I met, all the bonds I created, like the people. The people is probably the number one thing. And the energy is like the more energy you spend, the more like it gives energy. Mm. So I'm still really proud, even if I'm not working at those, some many of those events, I'm still really proud of all the like, and it gives me energy when anytime I see the the success or everything that is working, it's just like, eh, like little bubbly, happy feelings. <laughs> Um, it did got very toxic after many years though. What um, kind of toxic? The, the expectation that people, like the more, the longer you stay, the more people have unreasonable expectations. Mm. And I find it so healthy that I left while staying. Like I changed my role instead of reaching the point where it explodes in my face. I've seen so many other events when they are championed by either like a power couple or a single human who tried to do everything. They end up burning themselves out and that's that's not great. The other part was also like, yes, the expectation from other, but the expectation of myself. Uh, there was even a point when I was not tying anymore because I couldn't find partners because I was so afraid of being in a, in a dynamic where the person is not wanting to be tied by me because they want it, but because they want it, they have this like pedestal of like, oh, this person is the organizer, therefore mm -hmm. they, they're probably great. I the, remember the fame-based. So, like, yeah, that was bad. 
I, I was getting super afraid of like people didn't, it was not genuine anymore. And I couldn't tell the difference. I asked someone one day, like, why do you want to be tied by me? And they replied like, because I think you're safe. And I'm like, do you know anything about what I do? Because everything I do is pretty unsafe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it distorts people at some point where you're organizing things, it creates this weird, I don't know, like aura of like people stop seeing you for what you truly are and mm. you have to create a character instead. And project a lot of things on that character. Mm. Yeah, like, and the longer you stay, it just increase and increase. So when I stepped down, it kind of like released all that tension. It was good for the event, it brought new blood, more diversity, and and I didn't have to do all the work anymore. I could just enjoy. Yeah. It was great. <laughs> and one of the other things you've done around uh, work communities is create work curriculum, so teach, as you say. So how do you decide what to teach, what your work curriculum for an event or for community um, is going to be? Uh the, the first part is I try many, many things and I failed many, many times. Um, we never completely fail. Like, even if it's a whole mess, you actually, actually learn some things. It's not a, uh, it's not that bad, but I would say like my first suspension class was, yeah, and then I, I waited a few years before I thought suspension again. Uh, but it really started by trying many, many things, but also, Visiting other places. I went, I remember going to like a bunch of like beginner classes in San Francisco or LA while I was visiting for work. And <laughs> topologists being like, what are you doing in my beginner class? Like, mm -hmm. I'm learning how you teach beginners. <laughs> <laughs> and we always like, I took a lot of ideas from from these people and at Narrance we had great sessions where people were explaining how they were teaching beginners and some ideas were not a good fit for my community like my community is really small it's the same people coming over and over the um, the groups in LA and San Francisco is the opposite they have like an immense crowd they have several people who teach beginners and they have new people coming all the time hmm. so of course the format they, they use is different from the format I should use in my own place, but they're still like how they organize the, the format, what ties to DP. I think we should teach what we're passionate about and what we master. And from if you look at what you're passionate about, then everything else will follow. That makes and sense. And adapt the format to the group. Abby, you created this really cool website called rope365.com. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? So when I retired, was a, there was a thing I didn't retire from. Uh, 2013, I did this challenge, tying every day for an entire day. It drove me mad. I learned so much. I built really nasty habits that I had to unwind for years afterward um and then from there i was uh i was trying to think of a different way to teach via books and or video or any format and i was things like intimacy or um 
communication. They're really hard to teach by explaining people what to do. So I was wondering, like, what if we would give people exercise mm -hmm. that will get them to discover these concepts by themselves? So the day I thought of that, I was like, I'm going to make a list of things. And if I can list enough things, I'm going to start building some kind of resource, either like a book or something. Um, and a few hours later, I had over 200 exercise listings. Amazing. I was like, yeah, there is something there, wow. but it was a mess. And, and my partner was like, what if you organize it by topic or like, okay, you got like 365 exercise, but if you organize it by like week <laughs> and by season, <laughs> and that was a great idea. So I went back and like shuffled things up. And from uh, from there, it's been many years now. Again, I mean, we need to check again when I started. Um, but at first, I was uh, I was aiming to make a book and writing in this Google Doc that ended up being like hundreds of pages long. And I started feeling guilty because I realized that like I'm not. This is not my job. This is a hobby. I don't want this to transform in some kind of stressful experience of like writing and creating. So how can I share some of the content that I've made without having for me to figure out how to actually publish a book? So I created the website, uh, which has been, uh, I've been online for at least two or three years and I mean it's been online more than that but like I really two years ago I really started to pack in a lot of content on it uh, make it available for the world and I'm uh, so I'm a video game designer and I think a lot of my video game design has formed out the the website the structure which like how can I explain that um by organizing the activity, by making people able to find and by following some kind of like free to play model and this like making it a big part of the project free, I think is important for accessibility, um, bringing people in. And then at some point I can make a book on my own time when I'm ready for it. And then it's going to be the the, the payment of like the paid version with like improved graphics and <laughs> improved version really inspired by the my video games background okay super interesting so how how do people use rope 365 on their rope journey like what's the if someone wanted to go to the website today and use it um who is interested in rope what would you suggest so if you've never done rope before, I would suggest to start with the getting started section, <laughs> uh, which is play the tutorial, clear <laughs> uh, the tutorials. But for real, I even think that people who have experience should check it out because every page comes with references and links to a bunch of resources. So even like communication, there is so much to that. So going back to those core information, I think is really important, no matter if you're experienced or not. Um, I still go back to those like single column pie drills. They are so important. So every, almost every pages, be it the getting started section with communication and safety 
or be it like uh, from from there, uh, there is a chapter that is foundation that has all the um, like the single column tire frictions, uh, how to extend the rope, uh, how to call your rope. So each of those pages have usually a mini tutorial, at least for the, the first chapter that I have completed. So there are some tutorials. And then at the bottom, there is a section for references, inspiration, and um, so that you can check links to other resources. And there are also a section that is um, uh, like exercise you can do. So there's always challenge for everything. Even if you master using a column tie, if you look at that list where I'm going to challenge you to uh, tie with one hand, to tie it in your back, to uh, to tie it with, the, with a blindfold on, uh, then like you can challenge yourself even to the, with the basic to get uh, a higher mastery of everything. So every, every, ex like the whole thing is like the getting, getting started. And then the four, uh, the four big season, the first season is all the classics. So, and, um, and so the, the basic techniques, uh, the box tie, the chess harness, the frog tie, the hug tie, but also exercise for communication, intimacy, bed bondage, tension. So all those like core fundamental stuff is in the, the spring season. And in the second season is body position. So all the ways you can put the body in, we start with the upper body, um, having the hands in front, having the hands in the back, uh, tying the elbows in different ways. Uh, asymmetric ties, exposing posture, sitting posture, restriction, the restriction, um, doing things with the fingers, the toes. Uh, so really like shaping the body in the um, third season, which is fall, we go into techniques and mastery. So seven different single column ties and comparing them, seven different ways to call your rope and comparing them. Learning new knots, new techniques, um, using sabotage to challenge yourself into tying a different way, like taping your finger or, or uh, tying with like two ropes at the same time or making knots in your rope. So that is like super hard to tie with all things that will push you into developing new ways of um, using your techniques to overcome obstacles. And in the final, season which is winter it's all about exploration so like using furniture using bamboo we go back to ojojutsu and the basics of uh of where uh where this whole thing came from uh, even though we can argue that ojojutsu is really the, the ancestor or not uh i still think it's really interesting to, to study those things uh, like playing with the crotch uh, tying several people together um, so like the, the last season, like there's also like pain chapters or aesthetic chapters. Um, so there's also like no matter which, like you can, if you're already advanced, you can pick the chapter of what you feel like and go to anywhere, pick a challenge and try it out. Um, if you're a beginner, then you can follow the order, uh, especially for the spring season. I think the spring is a, is a good way to build a nice core foundation. And from there, you can explore in pretty much any order. Um, it's 
there is weeks and numbers, but really like just like figure out all for yourself and your journey. I would, uh, how we can help. Sounds amazing. Abby, in your personal play, you tie with a variety of body types and genders. Um, so how do you adapt your ties to different body types? I think each person is unique. So it's, it's hard to describe. What I would say is don't, don't look at stereotypes because somebody is as big breasts or because somebody has a penis or because they have those features doesn't mean that you should tie a certain way. I think it's all, it all start with a conversation with those people or how do they want to be? What, what are they ashamed of? What are they proud? And how do they want to play with that? Because sometimes somebody's ashamed of something, but they actually want to transform it. And sometimes they're ashamed of something and you, you should not play with that because it's triggering for them. Mm-hmm. And you could go to a dark place. Um, so like each person is so unique that like in the, in my, um, the, the chess chapter, there's one, uh, one of the days called sculpture. And what I did was to write with different people, explore with them about their, um, uh, that they're like their body and how we want to shape their body into doing something that they'll be proud. So I did with my husband, these ties where his chest was really compressed or another tie where it was looking very like, um, warrior like because that's what he wanted at that moment mm-hmm. um with another person they want to have their femininity in it so we we work with that and it didn't matter what their gender is this is what they wanted i did a lot of stuff feminine things with both like um male presenting or female presenting or very ambiguous we don't like the person change gender every day um and it's part of the play they like. I think one of the most interesting experience I had when it comes to adapting to a person was a, a close friend who's a, her neck was something really like that was linked to a childhood trauma and she was really afraid of, of doing anything related to that. And, but she was willing, she wanted to explore that and she had this dream of having a neck tattoo that was meaningful for, um, her, her own tribe because she's, she comes from a, a first, a first nation family. So like we work with breathing, with positioning of her neck and then progressively I add little choky, um, crossing hitch in front of her throat and then like having my hand on her throat. And we worked that out up to the point where she was feeling back in control of her, of her body. Wow. And then she didn't get that tattoo and she was so proud. I mean, getting a neck tattoo, like seriously, that's, um, that's a level of commitment. But I think you were really proud of having over, like, I don't think rope should be used as a therapy. You use therapists to do therapy, but I think rope is really good to get a grasp of your own body. And then that's a journey you figure out. Like it's not a specific knot of a specific diet. Are you proud of your hips? Do you like your hips to be like pushed down or like moved up or like twisted or sometimes people like to be ugly. Like I did this like face 
tie with a uh, with a friend is like make me ugly and like we pin this um their um their eye open like one eye open one eye closed flip the ears it was like every, everything is unique if you go through the whole 360 days you'll i think you'll figure it out <laughs> so Abby, rope has been a big part of your life for more than 10 years now and you talked to us about going through different phases where at one point you were very uh, front runner for events and then you stepped down a bit more and so on so today what part would you say rope plays in your life oh what rope plays in my life um The pandemic has really impacted things a lot. Uh, that's forced me to choose <laughs> and not what I would have chosen naturally. Um, I still tie every week, even if it's my mannequin right now. Right now, I cannot see most of my partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still go to kind of salon every weekend. And then I tie my mannequin if I don't have my partners. At least that thing has, uh, has forced me to, to tie every week. The, the book has also given me purpose of something that, that I can continue to, to work on. Um, when things start again, like being really present for my local community, I think it's going to be the most important for me. The step down has forced me to like, when I did the whole international event thing, There was little to do with the Quebec community because there was so few people and it was good that I invested myself in this international thing. But now there is a need here in my home and I, I think we need to pick our battles and it's not really a battle, but, uh, I want to focus on my people here. I want to focus on the relationship I created with all my partner that has scattered everywhere because I've been traveling. So I think like, Going back, going back to the basic, like my pet project is my book. My partners is the most important thing. My local community is the, the other very important things. And from there, everything else is just an add on. And we have to decide, like, is it a hobby or is it a job? Because if it's a hobby and it feels like a job, then we probably need to scale back a little bit. And I think right now I find. It is what it is now, but I think like it's a movement. It's going to change again. And uh, I don't know where, but I'm excited to find out where. Mm-hmm. And certainly before the pandemic, you traveled all over the world, teaching, performing um, as a top, as a bottom. Um, and you're also based in the West with a preference uh, to some degree for the Japanese style of rope. So from your experience, how do rope communities differ in different cultures in different countries and and more importantly in this this day and age what lessons can we learn from each other uh there's so much diversity and it's so beautiful and i said at the beginning that each event looks like the people organize it and it's this becomes really visible when you travel a lot um even inside of the same city You'll find little, if it's big enough, you'll find different little parts of people doing things different ways. And it's, uh, it's really fascinating. Um, it is not like people name the same things different ways. It would be nice if we could all agree, but that's not going to happen. Uh, <laughs> but it's also interesting to understand, like, 
why people name things a certain way, what is important for them. And like Urix in Europe and Narix uh, in the States has been really key into gathering all those styles into the same place so that they can like mix and match and then go back to their community. So I think we've been really fortunate with having those events that brings a couple of people in, shuffle things like knowledge, discovery, safety information. Um, so many of the safety information I wrote in my, in my Road 365 uh, website comes from just talking with a shit ton of people. And often they will not go on the internet and write long posts about this injury they had because they never fully understood what happened. But by connecting to different people, you find out uh, what really happened. But no matter where you go, rope brings passion like in the most beautiful way. Um, and I really like that. And I also find that when when a group becomes too big, it will it will at some point break off in smaller groups. I, I call it like the, the soup <laughs> theory is that when you have too many ingredients in the soup, it starts tasting bad. So it's fine. Like you don't need to mix everything together and you don't need to all fit. And I think there's, there's a, I used to have this big goal of like, we should have this event where everybody will be in the same place and get along. That's, that's not how it works. And it's, it's also fine, I think, to find what we connect with and what we don't. Um, to look at somebody, be inspired by things they do and not like and other things that they do. Um, I couldn't really say like, oh, do you, like, Europe is like this and America is like this and Japan is like this because that would be so underrepresenting the diversity of what all of these groups is like you'll you'll find places where like everybody ties in nylon and everything is super technical and in the same city you'll have these like we're only using jute rope and doing floor work with one rope and that's that's what we do and it's all it's all good mm, that's a beautiful message so abby for our listeners who are interested in your material i'm sure it's going to be a lot of them where is the best place to go is it rope365.com yeah, if you want to learn, practice, find new ideas of things to do, World 365 is the place to go. You can subscribe to the mailing list, uh, which can be found on every single page of the website, but also in the support me section um, to get all the news and updates. Uh, if you want to have sneak peek on the development process and all the like, I post a lot about my weekly in uh, under Kana. Uh, Nawashikana Salon on Twitter, Instagram, FetLife. It's all in the same Ebi McNaughty. Uh, so Instagram at Ebi McNaughty. Twitter, Ebi McNaughty. FetLife, Ebi McNaughty. I am not on other social media, but I think it's enough. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like good coverage. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us on the podcast today, Ebi. And thank you for creating this resource for the community. It's super appreciated and having me. So that's all from us today at the Rope Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from and come find us on our FetLife page, Rope Podcast. If you have a question related to Rope, we'd love to answer it in one of our future episodes. So drop us a message on FetLife. 
If you like this podcast and would enjoy more episodes, find all the ways to support us on our website, rockpodcast.com. In particular, please consider supporting us directly on our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. And have fun tying. Mm-hmm.